Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our weekly podcast series. My name is Richard, and on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we went through James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20 with Pastor Chris, and we questioned if we had a dead faith or a working faith. We determined that a working faith is not a faith based on works, but works based on faith. This week, Pastor Brian continues where we left off in James, picking up at verses 21 through 26 to discuss some historical controversies and reaffirm what a working faith is. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Um, so today we're in James chapter 2. We're going to be going over, over verses 21 through 26. Uh, the original plan was for Chris to cover this part with it last week, but uh, he got to eight, nine pages and realized he was only halfway done. So we're covering the rest today. Um, and what's interesting about today is we're actually going to take some time. I'm going to do the message a little differently than I normally do. And we're going to take some time to look at um, a historical controversy around the passage that we're looking at today. Um, as, as we do this, I want to kind of explain to you guys why this controversy is so relevant to this passage. Um, and so the controversy we're going to look into is the controversy between uh, what Protestants believe and what Catholics believe. And so James chapter 2, uh, specifically verse 24, has been a heavily used verse in this debate. Um, are we saved by faith alone or are we saved by faith plus works? Which one is it? And so uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at James chapter 2. We're also going to uh, clearly define uh, the Catholic perspective and the Protestant perspective. Um, and then we're going to show how um, when we read James, when we read uh, the writings of Paul, when we read the Old and New Testament, we're going to see how they support faith alone along with the Protestant belief and how they do not support faith plus works for salvation. And what we're going to see is that Works are the fruit of our faith um, and not a mechanism to save us. And so with that said, let's go ahead and read the passage that we're going to be going over today. James chapter 2, again, starting at verse 21. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so before we jump in, um, I'm going to break down how we're going to go over this. Uh, the first section we're going to go over is defining uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism. And we're going to take a little bit of a look at the Reformation. In the second section, we're going to take a look at the two examples James gives us here. So we have Abraham and we have Rahab. And so we're going to see how these two examples play into the topic. And then finally, we're going to review verses 24 and 26, which is uh, 24 being that key verse that's debated over. Um, and what I want to show you is how verse 26 helps to clarify the point of verse 24 and how uh, the rest of Scripture added in helps to give us the understanding that we are saved by faith alone, and that is not by faith plus works. And so as we're getting into this again, first we're starting with Catholicism versus Protestantism. And as we define uh, Catholicism, I want to make it clear that we are not defining all of Catholic doctrine. We're only going to define certain doctrines around this exact topic. So what 
where do faith and works work within our um, salvation? And we're not going to define all Catholic belief as in uh, we're going to focus on Roman Catholic belief, and that is how it was defined at the time of the Reformation. If you guys don't follow up on uh, any modern uh, religious movements, uh, you'll be aware that the most recent pope has kind of thrown a, a cog into the wheel of Catholicism with some of the beliefs. And so I, I don't think that even the, the most recent pope would necessarily fall in line with how we're going to define Catholicism today. Um, so I want to make it clear that we're defining uh Catholicism as it was stated at the time of the Reformation and how it has been uh, traditionally held throughout the hundreds of years since. So the Catholic perspective is that they are saved by faith plus works. Um, so faith alone is not enough and works alone is not enough. So if you are doing the will of God, you're doing good works, but you do not have faith, you are not saved because you lack faith. Same thing if you have faith, and that can be the most in-depth faith of anyone, if there are not works accompanied with it, you are not saved. And so they would define salvation as faith plus works. I know oftentimes people talk about Catholicism being a works-based salvation, but that does not mean that they don't include faith in with it. They think you need both faith and works together. Um, out, of, out of this, we get that they are um, not sealed into the promise with their faith. And so if you commit what they call a mortal sin, you will fall out of grace. So you can have both faith and works. You can be doing great, but if you commit a mortal sin, you can think of it as a scale. So you're balanced, you're, you're in the grace of God, but then you sin, and now you're kind of out of balance, and you're going to need to do something to rebalance yourself. And so you are not sealed into the promise. You can fall in and out of grace depending on how much sinning you're doing and how much good works you're doing. And so out of this, they get penance and sacrament. Penance is where you go to the, to the priest and you confess your sins. Um, and one thing we need to note is that as Protestants, as Christians, we actually do confess our sins as well. But at this confession is a little different. The priest has the ability to absolve you of your sin, which is the part we disagree with. The priest, um, in, in, in Protestantism, it is only God that can absolve you of your sin, not the priest. But in Catholicism, penance means you go to the priest, confess your sins, and he is the one that absolves you of them. The other thing to get out of this is the sacraments, which is works to absolve yourself. It's gaining merit. And so you've sinned, you've committed moral sin, you're out of balance, then you do sacraments and you rebalance yourself to regain salvation. So it is faith plus works. And out of this, what they get is that um, the only way you can get into heaven is if God declares you righteous, and this righteousness is gained by that balance of faith and works. And so you do not enter heaven until you are declared righteous by God by obtaining that perfect balance. And this is where they get the doctrine of purgatory. If you have not met that perfect balance, but you have faith, you get sent to purgatory where you can then have your sins atoned for by other people. And they get from this a treasury of merit. So additional merit gets put into this treasury. And so if you sin and you um, do not get that perfect balance. When you die, you go into purgatory and you can pull out of the treasury of merit to then become righteous enough to enter into heaven. And so Jesus's additional merit and the saints additional merit and any additional merit that you would do as well gets tossed into that bank for anyone to get out of purgatory. Um, and so that's kind of defined how they, you can see how having faith plus works would kind of define those doctrines for them, make them necessary. And so what I want to do now is go over uh, Protestantism and the Reformation. 
And so once again, as we go over Protestantism, uh, much more colloquially known today as just Christianity, we don't really oftentimes refer to it as Protestantism anymore. Um, but Protestantism and Catholicism are both branches of Christianity. That's why we're making the distinction here today, that we are Protestant in our understandings. And we're not going to go over all of Protestantism, just like we aren't going to go over all of Catholicism. We're going to focus on, again, these key doctrines, and we're also not going to focus on uh, just Reformed Protestantism or, or how Protestantism was defined at the time of the Reformation and how uh, we uphold it here in this church today. And that's because there are people who would call themselves Christians or be under the umbrella of Protestantism that range from workspace based all the way to universalism, which is everyone gets in whether or not you have faith or works. And so we're not going to defend all those range and we're not going to define them today. We're just going to define uh, Reformed theology, Reformed Protestantism. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of counter those Catholic views that we just went over. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of give a little bit of background on the Reformation itself. And so if you guys aren't familiar with the Reformation, um, Martin Luther sparked the Reformation in October 31st, 1517. Uh, while most of the world celebrates holiday, the Reformers celebrate Reformation Day. Uh, so you can uh, celebrate with them by singing hymns and praising God on that day and thanking him for the Reformation. But what we need to understand about the Reformation is it is not a single moment in time. Uh, the reason we celebrate that day is because that's when the Reformation took hold. But uh, Reformation happened constantly within the church. And before this time, there were many people that uh, were within the Catholic Church who tried to reform the Catholic Church and bring it back into proper doctrine. Um, and there's a specific reason that the Reformation launched when it did. One of those reasons is the printing press. So the printing press was invented around 1440, and by 1500, it was widespread throughout Europe. And so as Martin Luther and John Calvin and other reformers were able to print out their documentation and refutations of the church, it was more able to readily spread throughout the church. And so what we need to understand from this is that the church did not just disappear for 1500 years and then pop up at the Reformation. The Catholic Church is part of the history of the body of Christ. The Catholic Church does have, we, we actually uh, reference a lot of the same saints as the Catholic Church as being influential to how we understand the Bible. And so we can't think that the Catholic Church has always been rejecting uh, true biblical theology. We need to understand that there have been Christians throughout the Catholic Church, and even today there can be some who would technically go to Catholic churches and still have proper understanding of the gospel. And so we cannot just simply kick them all out of the kingdom, but we do want to refute Roman Catholic teaching. Um, and so with that said, uh, we have Martin Luther goes out and he gives these corrections to the doctrines, which are to not only these doctrines that we're going to find, but also to a lot of the practices and other things within the Catholic Church. But again, we're only going to stick to what uh, uh, has a relation to faith and works. And so as Protestants, we believe that we are saved by faith alone. Now, what we need to understand by this is we do not mean that there is no place for works in the life of a believer. In fact, we affirm that there are good works in the life of a believer, but they are not the mechanism that we are saved by. We are saved by faith alone created for good works. And so good works are still a part of our life, but they do not save us. From this, we believe that faith seals us into the promises of God. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. And this is because we are sealed into the promise by God. If Christ was able to atone for our sins completely, there is no sin that we can commit that is going to pull us 
out of the grace of God. We are eternally within the grace of God. Now, we still confess our sins and we repent of our sins, but this is not to regain the grace of God, but this is rather out of obedience to God in the grace of God. Um, From this, we have no need for anything such as penance or sacraments. We have no need to atone for our own sins. We believe that Jesus Christ's work on the cross was the perfect atonement for our sins, completing the work that we cannot complete or add to. And so there is no need for us to add to our grace. There is no need for us to add to our righteousness because Christ's righteousness is imputed onto us just as our sins are imputed onto him. He paid for them in full past, present, and future. And there is no need for us to do anything to add to it. And so because of this, because we have the righteousness of Christ, we do get to enter into heaven. There is no purgatory. There is no waiting around for us. There is no scale for us to correct God removes the scale when he dies on the cross for our sins. And we are completely covered. And so you might ask, why go over these differences? Why include history? Aren't we in church to read the Bible and study from the Bible? What's the purpose of going over all this information? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. (laughs) Um, So we do affirm here that uh, the, the idea of sola scriptura or scripture alone. And so we do hold that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith in the life of a believer. So when we want to study God's word, we, we hold the Bible as the highest authority. But what that does not mean is that we cannot learn from anything outside of it. What it simply means is that if what we learn outside of scripture contradicts scripture, we hold the scripture rather than the outside source. And so we can still learn from history. And when we review this history, it's going to help us understand how this verse has been misinterpreted in the past, and it'll help to prevent us from misinterpreting it in the same exact way. Um, another way it can help us is if we are going out in an, in, an, in an evangelistic purpose. If we're talking to someone who is Catholic and we want to kind of refute their ideas, it's helpful for us to know what it is they believe, because when you misrepresent something, it kind of shuts down the conversation. So you want to be able to properly represent what they believe as you're countering what they believe with the word of God so you can properly pull them into proper doctrine by the word. And so again, to do that, we're going to need to actually examine the word, and that's what we're going to do now in our next section. Um, We're going to be jumping back again into verse 21. We're going to look at the examples that James gives to us of, of Abraham and Rahab, and we're going to use these two examples to try to understand exactly what it is James is telling us in these verses. So Abraham is, Abraham's example starts verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And so here it would appear as if James is declaring that Abraham was made righteous by his works, but we need to examine it a little bit more closely to see that he is not, in fact, saying that. And so the work that he brings up to us is what we find in Genesis chapter 22. We see the work of Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar. Genesis chapter 22, verse 9 through 10 says this, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
Now, God fortunately stops him in that moment, and we can't really get deeper into the symbolic meaning of this act. Um, but we need what we do need to focus on today is um, this is the act, this is the work that James wants us to look at. And we see it in Genesis chapter 22. But what's interesting is then he goes on to quote in verse 23, he quotes out of Genesis chapter 15. And so I want to read you the passage that he quotes out of. So Genesis 15, verse 1 through 6, says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham is already declared righteous before he even has the name Abraham. He's declared righteous before the work ever comes about. And this is the righteousness that James is talking about being perfected. Let's also look at uh, the book of Romans real quick because Abraham is also used as the example in the book of Romans. And I think this is by the providence of God that the exact same example is used in James as it is in Romans. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Both of them quoting out of Genesis chapter 15. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so what Paul is telling us is that Abraham is justified by his faith and not by his works. And so when we read James, we see that he's giving to us the example of these works that happened later in Abraham's life when he was already justified previously in his life by his faith. And he tells to us that he is um, made perfect. His faith is made perfect by this work. And that is the key to this example. The faith, his work is not saving him, but it is perfecting the faith that he already had, that already brought to him righteousness. We see in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are, um, that we have Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so what, what the Hebrews is saying here is that we run this race, we do good works, 
because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He has given to us our faith. He perfects our faith, and we do good works because of it. And that's what Abraham is doing. Abraham has faith in God, and that's what enables him to do this work. Because you see, if God did not have faith in Abraham, he would not have been able to take his son and offer him up. But because he had such strong faith in God's promises, he knew that God was going to give him an heir of his own. He was willing to do as God had called him to do and take his son and take the knife to his son. Now, God did not intend for him to actually drive the knife into Isaac, but he's displaying Abraham's faith in the act of obedience. And that is exactly what works do. They display our faith. They are an example of our faith. And so what Abraham's example shows us is that as he goes in Genesis 22 to offer up Isaac, is he's displaying his faith. He's showing that his faith is true. And his faith is being strengthened even by his works, not to save him additionally from the works, but to display and encourage the faith that has already saved him. We then get the example of Rahab. Um, one thing about Rahab is we don't actually have a lot of information about her from the Bible. And so I think James includes her in this for a different purpose. Verse 25, he says, In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Um, so if you're not familiar with who Rahab is, we find her in the book of Joshua. Now, this is when Joshua is sending the scouts into the promised land. They're going to scout out the land, and they get caught. And they come to this woman, Rahab, and she hides them in her home. Joshua chapter 2, verse 3 through 4 tells us, And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And so Rahab and these men make a pact. They say that if, if she gets them out of the city safely, they will spare her when they come in to destroy Jericho. And so Joshua and his men come, they destroy Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, we see this. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household um, and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. What's interesting about this is not only did she live amongst the Jews now, a Gentile woman who is a harlot, but she actually joins into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 tells us this, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And so Rahab is a Gentile woman who is a harlot who by the laws of the Jews would have been stoned for her harlotry. Yet she is redeemed, she is brought into Israel, and she gets to participate in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so what we see in this is James is giving us two examples of those who have been saved. One is Abraham, who is highly exalted in the eyes of all Jews. He is one of the patriarchs of the Jewish religion. He is looked highly upon. His faith is clearly displayed throughout the Gospels, throughout the, the Bible. And then James compares it and contrasts it to, to Rahab. Not only is she not Jewish, but she's a harlot. She's a sinner. She's someone who is outside of what especially the Pharisees would see, someone who could be saved. Yet James is giving to us here, Abraham and Rahab, both saved. And so James, uh, including of Rahab here, is for that purpose to show us that the promises of God have always been for all people. 
We can even see this in the promise given to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him, not this, not just the Jews. And so I think a lot of times there's a misconception about what the old covenant is and what the new covenant is. The old covenant was not for salvation for the Jews only. The old covenant was for salvation for all people through the Jews. So their covenant was for the priesthood. Their covenant was for the prophets. Their covenant was for the lineage of Jesus Christ. And the the second covenant, the one that we partake in, was always meant for all people, for Jew and Gentile. And so that's what James is pointing out here through using the example of both Abraham and Rahab, showing that salvation is for all people. We then have uh, that pesky little verse, verse 24, that we still need to go over. Uh, again, this is the verse that Catholics will often point to in saying, see, it is not by faith alone. So let's read verse 24. It says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you might read that and go, uh-oh, and your heart might sink and say, aren't they right? It says right here, clearly, by works and not by faith alone. So how is it that Protestants can come to this crazy idea that we're saved by faith alone when we see clearly here, not by faith alone? Well, what we need to do is we actually need to examine this verse in the light of the context of the book of James, as well as in the light of the context of scripture as a whole. And so what I want to go through with you first are the other passages that kind of add to this discussion. So first we see that we are not saved by the law. There are are no works that we can do to add to our salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Excuse me. Um, So we see here that we cannot save ourselves by the law. When we attempt to save ourselves by works, we are cursed because we have to uphold the entirety of the law to receive salvation by the law. And so the law was never meant to actually save us. It was meant to expose to us our sins, and we are saved by our faith, as shown here in Galatians. But we can't simply say that we have faith and then not do good works because there's a uh, good works will absolutely and necessarily come out of our faith. It is the fruit of our faith. Just as a tree grows and produces fruit, so our faith will grow and produce good works. And this is because we are made new creations in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so we were once slave to our sins. We were once in bondage to our sins, doing the will of the flesh. But now that we are in Christ Jesus, we are slaves to Christ And out of a desire to be obedient to him, we do good works. If I have an employer and my employer tells me to go do a task, I'm going to go do that task because I work for my employer. And in the same manner, with Jesus Christ as our master, when he commands us to go do things, we go and we do them. We are called to do good works. 
We must also recognize that we are not made righteous by these works or by his transformation of us, but we are made righteous by him and him alone. Romans 5, 18 through 21 says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one man um, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we are not made righteous by our acts because we were under Adam, we were in sin. And when Jesus Christ came and redeemed us, he redeemed us by his obedience, not by our obedience. So we are made righteous by the obedience of Christ. And when we sin, even in Christ, his grace abounds all the more over us. This passage makes it very clear to us that his righteousness and his obedience redeem us, not our righteousness and our obedience. We receive his righteousness through the transaction on the cross. And so we must understand that both things are within the walks of a Christian life, faith and works. But one saves us, and one is our obedience to the one who saves us. This is also because as we are transformed by Christ, we are not just transformed at one point, but we are continually transformed to be better obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so as Christians, we are still going to fail. We are still going to sin. But in Christ Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to increase us from glory to glory, make us more into the image of Christ as we increase in our faith. And the way that reflects is in our works. We do the will of God more as we are in Christ, longer as we mature. And I can think of no other verse that speaks most clearly to this topic than Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are saved by grace through faith very clearly, but we cannot neglect the good works we were created for. We have to walk in them. That is what we are called to do in Christ. If you've ever wondered, what is God's will for me? God's will for you is to do his works. God's will for you is to do what he has called you to, to serve those in need, to fellowship with one another. You are serving God in those actions. And so we must see James chapter 2 in this context, specifically James chapter 2, verse 24. And as we've gone through James, what have we been discussing? Well, we've been discussing tests of our faith. How can I test my faith to see where it's at? And that's exactly what James is doing too for us. He's giving to us yet another test of our faith. And today's test of our faith is our works. Are you displaying works? Can you see the evidence of your faith or the fruit of your faith in your works? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, is there fruit of that? And so again, verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works 
and not by faith alone. And so we see that you see that amen is justified. We can see the evidence. That's what he is telling us. We can see, or if I want to examine myself and see if, how my faith is doing, I can look at my works. Am I doing what God has called me to do? And when I'm not, I repent of that sin and I turn back to him. And when I am, I praise God for giving me the ability to serve him well. That is what James is giving to us here. And I think it is clarified even more clearly when we read verse 26 along with it. He says in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also also faith without works is dead. I think we hear this a lot, faith without works is dead, but we need to focus a little bit on that first part, for the body without the spirit is dead. So you see, God created us not simply as spirit, but as body and spirit combined. Um, one of the things that the Gospels fight against is a Gnostic belief that anything of phys- physical form is bad and anything of spiritual form is good. That is not what the Bible teaches. God created and he called his creation good. God created you and he He created you with intent. Your body is necessary, and your body and your spirit are linked. You are your body and your spirit. And in the new creation, in your new body, you still have a body. You still are spirit and body in heaven. So body and spirit are linked. Your body, the physical, cannot live without the spiritual. They are interlinked. And so in the same way, faith without works is dead. If you have faith out of necessity, works will come forth. They are related to one another. This does not mean, again, that you require works for salvation, but it means they are linked. There's a necessity for works to flow out of your faith. And we can see an example on the cross that that, um, you can have faith without works and be saved. We see this with the thief on the cross. Luke 23, verse 39 through 43 says this, One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, we we need to pay attention to exactly what the thief on the cross is saying here. When he says, do you not even fear God? And he's talking about him hurling insults at Jesus. So he's just defined Jesus as God. And he tells us that Jesus is innocent of what he's done. He's done nothing wrong. He's being hung on the cross for blasphemy, for declaring himself to be the son of God. And so it's very clear that this thief has faith that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And here Jesus tells him that he will be with him in paradise because of his faith. There is no opportunity for this man to do good works. He's sitting there dying on the cross, yet he will be in paradise. And so, again, works is a necessity that comes out of faith, but faith or works are not a requirement for salvation. In the book of Romans, Paul fully agrees with the sentiment. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For in the mind set on the flesh is death, but in the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what this verse is doing is it's contrasting those who live according to the flesh or in, in a sinful life, and those who live according to the spirit or in, according to Jesus Christ. It's going to counter the two. And we see there in verse seven that the flesh is not able to be obedient to God. It is not able to submit to God. It is not able to please God. And so what we see from that on the flip side is those who are in Christ, those who are by the spirit are able to be obedient to God. We are able to follow the law of God. We are able to please God because we are in Christ Jesus. And so here what he's saying is in Christ, we can live out our obedience. We can do good works because we are saved. So we are saved by faith alone. And what James wants to give to us here in agreement with the rest of scripture is that in our faith, we will produce good works. So if you're examining yourself, if you're examining your life and you're looking at that scale and you're feeling guilt from that scale, recognize first and foremost that Christ got rid of that scale. He forgave your sins so you no longer have to look at that scale to receive righteousness. You have received his righteousness. But what you can also do with that is you can look at that scale and judge where you are in your faith. Let that be a judge of the depth of your faith and not the level of your salvation. And so you can repent of your sins knowing that Christ is faithful and just to forgive those sins. And you can desire to do the good works in Christ Jesus to again, increase your faith. And that's what James is doing for us. He's giving to us this scale. He's giving us this test for ourselves, not a test of are you saved or not, but a test of how well is your faith being lived out in Jesus Christ. You are called to do good works in Christ Jesus. And James is in perfect unison with the rest of scripture here. We are saved by faith alone, created for good works. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for everything that you have given to us. You have given to us salvation. You have given to us uh, your righteousness. You have given to us your mercy. God, something we never deserved. God, we deserved the punishment of our sin, and you placed all of it onto Jesus Christ, who perfectly atoned for each and every one of our sins. And because he perfectly atoned for all of our sins, God, we can live a life of obedience to you, not worrying if we are in or out of your grace. God, we can know that we are eternally in your grace. And God, we are so thankful for that fact. And so God, my prayer is that we would um, accept your grace. God, we would live in that grace, God. We would live in our faithfulness to you, God, and go out and be obedient to your word. God, the, the Bible tells us that, that true religion is those who go out and they feed the hungry. They, they spend time with the widows. They go to the orphans. God, we want to be those people who do your will. We want to be the people that serve the least of these in our communities and around the world, God. God, I pray that you would light a fire in our lives, that we would have a strong desire, God, to do good works in your name.
Thank you again for everything that you have done for us. Amen. That is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this teaching, share it with others and tune in next week to hear more as we continue through the book of James. If you are interested and would like to find out more information on our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find more information. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we will see you here next time.